Welcome to the Coaching Podcast with your hosts, Emma Doyle and Simon Blair, coach for success in sport and business. G'day and welcome to the Coaching Podcast. I'm Emma Doyle here with Rowan Fisher. I've known you so many years. You've had such an impact and influence in my coaching career. I'm so excited to have you on the show. So listen, mate, I'm going to get straight into it. The first question is the Vegemite question. You either love it or you hate it. You're an Aussie. What's your take? Massive Vegemite fan, Em. Massive Vegemite fan. And uh, I don't know if everyone's really got onto the the new uh, avocado and Vegemite together. Like, it's a real winner. I've only found that recently, but it has taken me to another level with my Vegemite love. So, yes. Yes for Vegemite. Uh, Yes for Vegemite. Yes for avocado. Maybe even sprinkle some feta. Anyway, we'll we'll stop there. Because you answered that way, our follow-up question is, can you share with us a coaching moment that went really well? And what were the lessons? And then followed up by a coaching moment that didn't go so well. And what were the lessons? I had the honour of coaching Australia in the 14 world teams uh, a long time ago. And uh, I got result with a player. It was one of the moments where even though I was coaching in a team environment, it was actually the importance of trying to have the team values. But I also there was a certain player that wanted to she wanted to drink a milkshake. Her thing was a milkshake. And I was kind of, you know, if I was really sticking to my thoughts at that time, I'd be like, oh, that's not really what I want. Is She loved a chocolate milkshake. And it didn't really fit within the team values as me as a young coach trying to think, no, no, everyone's got to. But it was just one of those moments where I actually made sure that the player was, each player was happy in themselves with what they were able to do. And I, I created an individual environment within a team structure and it probably just reinforced to me that if if I was trying to make everyone a square when you've got a rectangle in a team, you've got a circle and you've got a triangle, I think um, you can do certain things that can bring them together, but you've actually got to also at, the, at, at other points treat them as a triangle or treat them as a rectangle. And, and, and for me, that was a really important moment as a younger coach because it just gave me that idea of individuality is so important within within your coaching structure. Yeah, fantastic. I love that example. Thanks for sharing. What about a moment that didn't go so well? Uh, as a younger coach, uh, I think one of the things I had uh, some players talk to me about their the pressure that their parents were putting on them and uh, I got to the point where I was feeling responsible for this player and I started to instill my values as what I thought a parent should do Um, and I overstepped I overstepped my mark um, and and in a way at the end of the day the player and the family kind of stuck together because I was thinking I was doing the right thing by the player by kind of stepping outside of the area that was my expertise here and it actually came back to bite me um, down the track with that player and that family. Um, so I'm not saying that you shouldn't uh, be prepared to speak up for the player if they need assistance here, but I, I actually went beyond the level of being a coach in this situation and it's something that, I, you know, I'd moving forward, I know I know not to do that now. And so it's not really necessarily a coaching moment, but I suppose I, I see coaching of a player in a holistic mindset and it's not just about the forehands and the backhands and, and the, the tactical. It's actually about the player 
behind the scenes, the team that she has with her, the communication with the parents. Like I'm, I really think they're important pieces. So, but there is a line, and and uh, as a younger coach, I, I definitely overstepped that line at one stage of my career. Yeah, thank you for sharing that vulnerable story. I'm sure many of the coaches out there can relate relate to that. It's such an important uh, topic, isn't it? Parents, players, coaches. The next question is the sliding doors question. I come from country Victoria, and I uh, lived all, I lived all my life in Ballarat till the age of about 26, and coached in the town, played tennis in the town, went to school in the town. And I actually went for a job, Tennis Tasmania, and came second for that job. And it was a, it was an opportunity I thought that I I really was ready for. And um, I, I didn't get the job. And one of the things I always um, have done and said to people is when you don't get the job, it's a great opportunity to, to have that moment where get the information of why you didn't get the job and, and then use it from the the president of tennis tasmania at that time he gave me he gave me two pieces of advice that have really stayed with me he was like we could really see that you had the skill sets that we were looking for but we were concerned that you had only ever coached in one town your whole life and we were also concerned that some of the stuff that you were going to need to do within this role required networking and obviously being in one town all your life everybody knew you um, you, you didn't have to develop those skills there at the moment. You you kind of had that they evolved as a result of living in that town all your life. So I really took that moment on to be like, if I'm going to be successful or move forward in my life, I'm going to have to get brave here and actually move out of my comfort zone. So the, those next three years, I actually um, – left Ballarat within six months of getting that information and spent two years as a coach in America and then did a year of finance. I have a degree in, in accounting. I did a year of finance in London. And so I did three years of kind of overseas coaching and, and finance and then came back to Australia. And, and within six months, I, I had a role within Tennis Northern Territory that was similar in nature a bit to the role that I had applied for in Tasmania, but it was just that moment where I getting that information from the president of tennis Tasmania at that time really had a, had a pivotal point in my career, I suppose. So that's probably, probably my sliding doors moment. Whereabouts in the States did you coach? I did two years at a camp uh, called Windridge tennis camp up in Vermont. And so Mm -hmm. It was actually a brilliant experience for me. I actually became the director of tennis at that at that camp. It had quite the clientele. It was only uh, four months of the year that we were coaching, but the rest of the year I was actually busily recruiting U.S. college players and um, overseas staff to come and coach at our at our summer camp. Uh, it's, a, it's a moment in time that I'll I'll always treasure. My two years in America and being in Vermont uh, is just really really special. So. Yeah, two years there and then a year of finance in London, which was a long year. (laughs) (laughs) In one to a maximum of three words, what do you think makes a great coach? I'm a big believer in the coach being able to listen. Um, I'm a big believer in the coach, as I probably just mentioned before, being holistic in their approach. Um, And I probably have uh, spent a lot more time working in the women's space. And I, I think that, 
um, knowing you cannot just know the player for what they do on the court. You need to know the player for what they have off the court, and that, that makes um, a really important when it gets to that crunch time. Uh, the fact that you know the player more than just a tennis player really helps when it comes to those tough conversations. So um, holistic, and this is two words, but emotional intelligence is probably one that I really think um, we need to have when you're working with players as well. Fantastic. And finally, our last question is where we ask you to ask us a question. So, you know, when you get a chance to meet other successful coaches, I know you're in a high-performing environment uh, frequently. Um, what's that one question that always sparks Rowan Fisher's curiosity? In the last few years, I've really spent a lot of time working in the, in the doubles in the double space. So I'm going to ask you, uh, and, I, and I've asked this a fair bit lately to a lot of coaches because I'm challenging our Australian coaches on the way that we are teaching females in particular to coach doubles. But I'm actually going to ask you, do you have a favourite formation that you like to use in doubles? Mm -hmm. Favourite formation in doubles? Well, I... I, I normally I say I can't wait to answer that on the podcast, but no, I just have to answer that right now. <laughs> Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. The Aussie formation. I mean, come on. With my big forehand back in the day, uh, Aussies are known for their big serves and forehands. And I'm telling you, that that pattern was just sets it up on the ad court with two righties, the forehand poach, you know, I'm a big I'm a big fan of it. Um I had to just answer that one straight away. Can I, can I tell you a, can I tell a little story quickly on that? Um yeah, because... please. Um, I, as I said, I do some work in our Fed Cup with our doubles combinations and um, I'd organised during the Adelaide International the week after the Australian Open this year, one of the things we put together was Olivia Kadecki to play with Isla Tomlanovic and they'd, they'd never played before and um, I actually gave Olivia the challenge um, because she's a younger player and working with, the, with these older Australian players. I said, I want you to try and see if you can get Isla to play tandem on in the doubles match. That's your challenge. I want you to to do that. And uh, and one of the reasons is that Isla, I think, has one of the greatest backhands in the women's game. And so the the plan was to try and get Isla to serve from the juice court uh, and then get the backhand on the ad court. So, anyways, I watched them having the convers. I can see Olivia during the match had this conversation and like Isla's kind of shaking her head and. And in the end, Olivia goes, I can just see the hand motion going. So anyways, they go back to this traditional formation and then uh, the match goes on and uh, Isla, they're losing the match and I hear Isla go, let's try what you were talking about before. And, and Olivia goes, no, nah, no, nah, don't worry about it, it's too hard. So this is what happens within the match. Anyways, I speak to both the, the, the players after the match. I'm like, so Liv, I saw you trying to have that conversation with Isla out there. What happened? She goes, Oh, well, I, I explained to her what, what, what we were going to do. And I said, Oh, yeah, what, what word did you use to? And she goes, Yeah, I said, let's play tandem. And I was like, I've never heard of that word before. And I go, Oh, if, what about if she had said Aussie? She goes, Oh, yeah, I know what Aussie is. But because in Australia we don't call it Aussie and we call it tandem and Isla's come from that um, the European-American background, she's calling it Aussie. So there's just a great example of uh, the lack of communication or just the different wording that we use um, 
at certain times. So yeah, it was pretty funny. Lost in lost in translation. It's interesting. Uh, I think uh, one of the reasons that we had so much success in the, as you know, you know, in the the twenty eighteen uh, Junior Fed Cup with with Olivia was playing tandem, playing right. Aussie. The rest of the world calls it Aussie, but um, but we oh, we did that formation. I think almost sixty percent of the time. Yeah, I love that story. So thank you, thank you for sharing. Um, that that concludes the the official podcast. But can I? Uh, have liberty just two more quick questions if i may just uh because a lot of our coaches work with female players and and having your wealth of knowledge and many many years in in that space what would be your top three um pieces of advice when coaching female players oh em i could go on forever here i know i thought i put down three that's why i said three i actually think that i'm talking from an australian australian landscape right at the moment and one of the concerns I have with um, coaching in Australia is that we treat, we teach females with a male mentality. And um, I'm really big on making sure that there's a, there is, there are some commonalities, but there are some huge differences within, within men's and women's tennis. And uh, I'm just going to point out one or two of those differences because I think it, it, it will highlight why I think we should do things different between men and women here. And I'm just going to give you the example that um, I often would speak to a coach and I'd say, oh, have you worked on any doubles with the female players lately? And they'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, you know, the other week we did, I made it that they had to serve volley. And that was, the, that was what we put in place. And so I recently did some stats from doubles at the Australian Open and it was actually a few years ago, these stats themselves, but it was the year that Hingis and Merza won the Australian Open. And I, I did some stats from the quarterfinals onwards. So there's seven matches that we're talking about here, and there was over 700 points played within those seven matches. A few more points than that, but, but over 700. There was only seven serve volley points in those 700-odd, uh, sorry, seven serve volley points within those 700 points that makes yep. sense so we're talking one percent of women's doubles at the elite level is serve volley and yet i think that coaches when they look at the men's game and they'll say oh you know the women's game follows the men's game and all these things that have been in the past but i actually think that's incorrect um and interesting with those seven serve volley points martina hingis did four of those serve volleys and the other three were from teams that were match point down and they were serve volleying on match point down. So we're not talking about them using it at times that they're just breaking it up. They're basically at the last resort. And, uh, and, and you can imagine the success rate of those three serve volley points on, on match point. So the flip to that is that uh, in those three matches of the quarterfinals, the semifinal and the final for Hingis and, and Mirza, they actually hit 42 topspin lobs, that those two players, um, just on their own in those three matches. And so if I ask a coach or I ask a player, female player, um, how much work have you done on your topspin lob, they'll basically say they've, they've not used it or they've not practiced it. And so I give that example because I think when you talk about wanting to work with females in a doubles mindset, the topspin lob is one of the most crucial shots within the game of women's doubles. And I know that's not a shot for every player, but 
you will see in the top level um, doubles teams now, there is often, more, more times than not, there is a player within that team that has an unbelievable top spin lob. So I give that example saying, yeah, that you, and in the men's game, I don't think the top spin lob is, is, is a prevalent shot. It's probably they might chip the return and try and hit a lob over the backhand side of the net, of the net player, but, but you'll see in the women's game that the topspin lob itself, and it's a great shot to teach. You can talk about the sound that you've got to make with that shot. You can talk about the flight. It's also not um, – we, we kind of get caught in this idea of, talk, you know, players have got to hit big and hard and fast, and, and the element of being able to absorb pace or to be able to um, go fast with the racket head speed but slow with the ball you know, that's something that, that we're not teaching enough to our younger players. So so I'm really um I'm really keen to make sure that our coaches moving forward actually start to think about what is it that, that men do and what is it that women do. Mm. And if I can just add to that story, I'm kind of digressing here, but I also think that the overhead is a really important shot within the women's game, but I have constantly, for years upon years, when I practice the overhead with my players, I have, as each coach does, use my continental grip, feed the ball up high in the air, they hit the overhead. Yet that's actually not the overhead that they're seeing in a match. They're actually seeing the top spin lob. And so in a way I'm setting my players up for failure because I'm actually not giving them the actual ball that they're seeing within the, within the match. So, and it, it kind of hit me one time when they missed I, – I did about three or four weeks overseas where I just did five minutes every day on overheads and it become this little key thing within our within our practice every day to do overheads. And uh, we got to the Junior Davis uh, Junior Fed Cup final and we missed about seven overheads in that period. And I actually was like, what have I done wrong here? Like, I feel like this is my responsibility. I feel like they've missed this shot. And it actually dawned on me that all the overheads that they had missed were from topspin lobs of the opponents. And I'd actually set them up for failure because I had not practiced the shot in the way that they were actually going to need to hit it in a match. So, again, that's just something that that you don't think about. And it's so when I feed lobs to a male, I would, I would spend more time feeding it off a continental grip and throwing it up that way. But when I work with the females, I throw it up with a with a topspin feel to it, so that the players get that kind of dipping ball that uh, is going to be their overhead. So I think, look, they're just two examples of how I think there's a real difference between men's and women's tennis. And when someone says to me that uh, doubles is doubles, I, I have to bite my tongue. <laughs> Yeah, and we need to coach the the individual is uh, the key the key message through this podcast, isn't it? We need to focus on the on the triangles, the circles, and the and the rectangles within how we build the the doubles team together. Um, you've you've impacted me in in many ways. One of them that I use a lot now because of uh, a camp that we did together um, back in Melbourne is just uh, a, a drill called change. So rather than, you know, a simple drill, I'm sure all coaches out there would have done it, cross, you know, you hit your rally in cross court until somebody wants to go down the line. But instead of calling out down the line or line where you're kind of threading the needle and feeling like you've got to hit it near or on the line, um, you know, you you introduced me to the simple word of change as in change of direction. Um, with that comes so many awesome reframing and, and the neurology of the body of just being able to, oh, I can 
change direction on my terms or because maybe I want the pattern to go the other way. What are the language little inclusive tips as it relates to, you know, what, what have I missed in the last while COVID's been happening? Any little gems to leave me with? Well, interestingly, you actually used the word there that I'm actually trying to get all of my camps not to say anymore, which is down the line. I'm actually trying to get players, uh, coaches to now talk about um, when they change direction to use the words up the line because the mm. word for me, up the line, has a lot different kind of thought process than when you say down the line. Mm-hmm. And so um, for me, that's a, that's been a really important piece is that the idea of when you're changing direction, thinking that the ball, you, if the first word I use is up, Versus the first word I say is down. I think that has Ring a real. Shape. I think that has a real different mindset mm. to, to what actually happens with the ball itself. Mm-hmm. So Love I've it. noticed. Um, I've noticed that when we yeah have used the word up, there's been less balls that have gone into the net when the player has gone for that ball. What we used to call down the line. Yeah. So great. That's probably one. Yeah. The other one I like from. Um our time together I'm not sure if it was you or me but it doesn't really matter who takes the credit but the one where you know when and I'm sure again most coaches have done an activity where you rally for three balls one two three and then we would call out we would have the players call out play on instead of words like you know one two three over or one two three compete or one two three battle Um, just that subtlety especially when coaching female players it's you know one two three play on now is the mentality of building the point versus trying to end the point on that fourth fourth shot. Do you remember that yeah, one? There's a, yeah, there's a real interesting like the yeah you've got to hit three balls over each before we can start the point as such. And so when they do that and they say now or they say something, you see the ball speed get faster. You see the ball get flatter, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We were meant to be doing it the same before we said play on. It's mm-hmm. meant to, so. The word play on means basically continue as you were doing, not now all of a sudden that it's a green light, you can completely change everything that you're doing there. So yeah. I love uh, that one. So you got one, on. Have you got one more for me to uh, add, in, add into my coaching toolkit? I, I'm really trying to change the words of uh, I'm not a big fan of the word drive volley and I'm not a big fan of the word smash. And I think that uh, I'll use that at the moment with smash is that it gives, if you think about what that word means for a younger player, it gives it the intention that that ball is going to be absolutely smoked. And and in a lot of situations you'll see, and with an overhead, which is the word I'm trying to use, is that there are a lot of times where you're not balanced, you're not in the best position, it's still an overhead, but if you think that it's got to be hit with the smash mentality, um, I think you're going to make a lot of mistakes with that. So I'm a really, I'm a really big believer in the idea of that the wording that we give to younger players can influence how they actually track tackle the shot. And so mm. drive volley for me also has the mentality that when I'm hitting this volley, I'm driving the ball really aggressively. It's a, it's, and, and it gives it the intention that that shot has to be a finishing shot. And, and I, I'm not sure that that's actually what the intention of that shot is in in a lot of circumstances. So I think again, the wording that we've used there um, is pretty important. And so 
Uh, I'm not necessarily winning the battle across the country with this uh, change of terminology, but I'm just chipping away at it. You, you win it with me, but come on, you, you, I've got, you've got to leave me with what, what, what are we changing drive to? Come on. Like, I'm on well, the edge of my seat. I've started using the word that, that is commonly used in America more than it is in Australia. Um, and I'm not sure that it's the right word at the moment, but every, but there are swing. a number of coaches that are using the swing volley. Yeah. Um, and so for me, at least, that just that actually backs up what it is that you're doing, is mm-hmm. that you are swinging at the ball. So I, I'm, I'm more happy to use that than I am dry volley. You have heard it on the coaching podcast. The one, the only, Rowan Fisher, I always learn something. And that is how the world goes around in the coaching world. Thank you so much for being on the show and I miss you. Oh, thanks, Em. Good to see you. Speak to you soon. The coaching podcast was brought to you by Emma Doyle and Simon Blair. And if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to give it a rating and a review on your podcast listening device. Thanks for listening.